believe it will persevere until the end. We know it's not by our strength. Yes, we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, but also we know that it is God who works in us. So the promise is that if you have genuine faith, you will persevere until the end. You have hope until the end. And he kind of point them to, you see, the, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. That's looking forward to chapter 11 where we have all these heroes of, heroes of the faith, the passage. But um, you know me, where I'm going to be today, it's Hebrews chapter 6. Um, <clears throat> we're going to continue our journey in Hebrews. Um, today we're going to consider verses uh, 4 to 12. And the title of my sermon is Warnings and promises. So, we started the warnings portion last week and we're going to continue today, but it doesn't stop there. Uh, there is a promise um, that we can hold on to and be assured. So, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 to 12. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But <clears throat> sorry, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience Inherit the promises. Um, last time I, I mentioned that, and I'm going to mention it today, and in all the books and, and uh, messages on this passage, people come to this conclusion. This is one of the most difficult passages of Scripture because um, um, it creates so much... Um, Debates, arguments, um, and uh, yeah, it's there is a warning. There is a like really frightening one. But quickly, let me tell you like uh, the way I divided this chapter. Um, I have four part. Um, when I was studying this, I kind of divide the chapter in six parts. The first one is the goal. We saw that in verse 1, 2, and 3. So the goal is to go on, to, it's to leave the elementary doctrine of the Christ and go on to maturity. And we saw that this is talking about leaving the old covenant stuff, going to new covenant, go to perfection in Christ. Um, the, second part, the second portion of the uh, chapter, dealing with the warning against apostasy, uh, verse four to eight. That's where we. That's where we have this warning to uh, fall away against falling away. Verse nine and ten. There is a hope and a promise. So today I'm going to try to see these two parts. Um, 
the warning against apostasy and the promise, the hope, um, the assurance that we can uh, gain um, in this epistle. And the, the fourth part is encouragement to persevere in faith and holiness. We are, the author of Hebrews is encouraging the hearers, his audience, and us today to persevere until the end. The whole book is about perseverance. Uh, even um, Wayne Grudem and, and all the other guys, like they have a, they call it, they, when they do uh, um, papers, they produce papers, um, like when they're treated, treating this portion, they call it perseverance of, this, of the saints, which is the P in the tulip. So, um, but let's, let's see uh, quickly before, um, I have three points today, but before we get into points, I want to tell you this. The warning here is severe. It's threatening. But the Lord sovereignly juxtaposed or put together the warning and the promise. So people come to this passage sometimes, they doubt their salvation. They're afraid. But you don't have to go other places, right? Like read a few verses and you're going to see the assurance that if you're a true believer, you don't have to have your faith shaken. People like genuine Christians, they come to this passage, they're scared. I think I'm going to lose my salvation or things like that. But if you continue, uh, and the key is verse 9, um, though we speak this way, but in your case, uh, beloved, we feel, sure, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So it's like there's a warning, but also there's a promise and there's assurance for the believer. Um, sometimes it, it's not easy to deal with warnings and, and, and assurance passages in the, in the scripture because you have to explain what's going on, the tension between the two. Um, um, but today I'm going to try to do that. I'm going to try to explain like, the tension between the, the warning and, and um, the assurance or the promise that we have um, I'm going to quickly tell you six major views. I think we saw them last night, but last, night, last time. Um, six points uh, or six views um, people come up with when they read this passage. Scholars, theologians, like they come up with these six major views. The first one is the, the most popular one. It's the loss of salvation view. You can lose your salvation, they're saying, right? Um, second one is the loss of your reward. You, it's like this thing is talking about, you know, in First um, Corinthians when he talks about, when he talks about um, um, all your works will be burned up. So it's like you're losing your reward, but you're saved. This kind of falls into the category of um, easy believism. Because I'm saved, I'm like once saved, always saved. I trust in Christ. Don't add works to my salvation, okay? I can live my life however I, live, I, I want to, if you tell me to show me works, it's like, no, you, you're creating a, a, a system of works or legalism. The third one is the test of genuineness, genuineness view. It's to see, like, if someone is genuine in their faith. Um, kind of the same idea you have in 1 John uh, 2, verse 19. They went out from us because they were never of us. You know, you see, oh, this person fell away. Oh, they were never a Christian to start with. Kind of a retrospective on what happened to them. Um, um, the fourth view is the hypothetical view. It's the second most popular one. Uh, people are saying, like, this is a theory. It's hypo hypothesis. It's, it's not, it's just to tell you that that could happen to you if you could fall off, uh, if you could fall away from God. But since you have salvation, and salvation is never lost, so it's not, it's not going to happen. It's just like, like you know, a hypothetical. Um, there is one that is really difficult to explain, but um, I think I tried that last time. Irresolvable tension view. This one is saying that we have warnings, we have promises, and there is no logical connection with them. You just take them at face value. They are the word of God, but 
there is a mystery. You don't know how they kind of interrelate. Uh, it's this one stands over, stands over there. This one stands over there, but they, there is no correlation with them. And the last one, the sixth view, is the means of salvage of salvation. People think this is means by uh, uh, the Lord uses to help us in our sanctification, in our walk with Christ. Um, when uh, so. Um, the, the, one of the, uh, pers- the people who hold to this view, Thomas Schreiner, he says this, um, in our journey of the Christ- Christian life, we receive those warnings for what they say. When we read the warnings in Hebrews, in 1 John, or in Revelation 2 and 3, the seven churches, we take seriously the threat that if, if, if we commit apostasy, we will be eternally damned. The warnings remind us that falling away from the living God has eternal consequences. They shout, they call out to us, danger, danger, do not fall away from the living God. If you deny him, he will deny you. It is by precisely taking the warning seriously that we avoid eternal destruction. That creates a healthy fear in the believer. And he kind of quote, um, I reference um, Hebrews 4, where it's like, fear, um, lest any of you should fall away from the living God. Oh, sorry, fear that uh, uh, if you do, do not attain uh, the, the inheritance or the, the rest, the heavenly rest. All right, so those are the six main views. Um, and I, I think I... I the, the sixth one is what I, I, I like, and, and the reason is, like, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but also we know that God is the one working in us. Um, we, don't, we don't sit back. We don't live our life the way we want. We kind of take heed to these warnings. People, when they heed uh, the word of God, um, they, they, they receive blessings. I was thinking, when I was doing this, I, I didn't put it here. I was um, thinking about the destruction of the temple in 7080. And you know, Christ prophesied the destruction of the temple in Matthew 24 when he says, um, when you see the desolation of, uh, um, spoken by the prophet Daniel. Um, and I think Joseph says, like, people, like, they saw that and they flee to the mountain. Jesus told them, like, don't go into the city, flee to the mountain. If you have. One tunic, don't go back in, in the house and get a second one. And woe to the pregnant. And so they will heed the word of God. And they, were, they escaped the, the destruction um, of the temple. So when we heed the word of God, we, we, we are safe. There's safety in that. Um, all right, so I said I had three points in my sermon today. The first one is warning against, uh, the, against apostasy. The second one is a parable of two categories of professing Christians. And the third one is the promise or the, the assurance of the believer. All right. So the warning and the threat against apostasy. Let's read verse 4. It starts with 4, it is impossible The four here kind of connects what he said before. He's explaining. Um, we, we need to move on to maturity, and he's explaining why. And he kind of gives this example. And he starts with, it is impossible. There's an impossibility here. This phrase, it's impossible, is kind of repeated four times in Hebrews, um, and they are um, to um, there are really crucial times where, like the the the, the, author, the author of Hebrew, trying to convey something. The first one is here in this in this verse, for it is impossible to renew to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and have fall, uh, fallen away. The second place is in. The same chapter, verse 18, 
It is impossible for God to lie. The third place in Hebrews is chapter 10, verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And the fourth one, the fourth place where we see this phrase, it is impossible, is Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. So in all these cases, the author of Hebrews is telling them, there's something that cannot be done. Like you cannot, this cannot happen. So it's telling them there's an impossibility. So in our passage here, what is the impossibility? So you have to read verse 4 and 6 together. It's kind of some of it, like, or um, putting in between, but the, the sentence start in, starts in 4, and you find the rest in 6. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. This is saying people reach a place in life where it is impossible for them to regain or to get back repentance. In other words, it's impossible for them to be saved. Okay, listen carefully. I'm not saying God is not able to save them. Okay? But he's saying it is impossible for them to find repentance. And he gives the, the, the reason. We're going to see that because they're crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. All right? Uh, it's something they're doing actively. Like they, this, if you look in the original, it's like presently doing that. They're holding Christ to contempt and they... Um, they're crucifying him once again, almost like the Catholic. Every Sunday at the Mass, they crucifying Christ on the altar. Uh, but, all right, so repentance, a change of heart. So it's impossible for them to have a change of heart. The heart is hardened beyond measure. The very thing that God commands a man to do in order to be saved, to repent and believe, they cannot do it. They cannot repent. And we have an example in this book. In Hebrews 12, verse 17, it says, Esau. Children, who is Esau? The brother of Jacob, the older brother. He said, he sought repentance with tears and could not find it. All right, so the warning starts with an impossibility, and the impossibility is like, um, it's impossible uh, to restore these people to repentance. Now, let's look at the language uh, used in this warning. Um, but if you look on the surface, you, you would be like, whoa, this looks like Christian uh, lingo. This looks like experiences that a Christian would go through in their life. The first one, who have, who have once been enlightened? Does the Bible say Christians are enlightened? Yes, we receive light, right? Um, Ephesians 1.18, the Apostle Paul, in, in, um, in, it's telling the, he was praying for the Ephesians, and he told them, you have been chosen before the foundation of the world. And in verse 18, he says this, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So we, our heart, when we become Christian, we, 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 we are enlightened. We receive light. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, uh, when Paul talks about the gospel shining in the face of Christ, he says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So there is light. When Christian, so this language is like, Christian, they receive light. And people can come here and they read this, it's like, He's talking about a Christian. That's why many uh, big names and scholars, they come here and they're like, this is talking about a Christian. But my point today is to prove it's not talking about a Christian. So if I never said that, remember, it's not talking about a Christian, losing their salvation, okay? Um, yeah, there are so many other verses. Jesus says, I am the light, and whoever uh, believes in me will, will have the light. Um, and he, he told his disciples, and us by 
reference. It's like, you are the salt and the light of the world. Uh, so there is, there is this idea of Christians um, receive light. We are enlightened people. The second one, the second, uh, I, I would say, experience, um, those who have tasted the heavenly gift. If you survey the word gift in the New Testament, there are two main words that um, used to express that. There is the, the word charisma, where we have our word charismatic, um, and we have the other word doria. Charismatic is like um, spiritual gifts. The Lord gives uh, the church, um, I think there is a term for it, like grace endowments. Like it's to help edify the church, and you receive it freely. Uh, but doria is also like a gratuity. Someone gives you something, you didn't work for it, like, here you go. Um, and the word here is doria. Um, but as Christians, we receive gifts from God. Second um, Corinthians 9.15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The gift is inexpressible. There is no word to express the gift we have from God. I, there is a song we sing, um, if any if I would have 10,000 tongues like to express my gratitude to God, I'm just paraphrasing, but it's like, I can't. Like, it's, it's an inexpressible gift. Believers, they receive grace as a gift in Romans 3.24. James 1.17 says, every perfect gift is from, from where? From above. Um, coming down from the Father of lights. So they tasted the heavenly gift. These people cannot, the same experience a Christian would, would, would go through. There is the free gift of righteousness in Romans 5.17. Um, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Um, Peter said um, at, um, at Pentecost, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which, is what, which leads us to the next point. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. So this word shared can be used tightly, like um, you share the Holy Spirit. It's like you part, like there's another translation, you partake in that. It's like you won with that. You, you participate and you're fully in. But also there is like loosely, a part, like a loose participation. Um, but yeah, we have received the Holy Spirit, Christians. Um, Jesus um, told them, um, I'm, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you, you are clothed with power from on high. Luke 24, 49. And in Acts, that happened. Acts 1, 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all, the Judea, and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the, the earth. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit, Christians, like um, Ephesians 1.13. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Spirit of God dwells in the, in the Christian, in the believer. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. So there is this sharing in the Holy Spirit um, um, the next experience is they have tasted the goodness of the word of God. Peter says this, the, the, the word of God is like milk, uh, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation. The word of God help us to grow into salvation. First Peter 1.23, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, seed but of imperishable to the living and abiding word of God. So the word of God is an imperishable seed. Um, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. So Christian, Christians are people of the word. We live by the word. We should live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
and the next one, uh, they have tasted the powers of the age to come. I like these verses, um, kind of eschatological, right? But I'm not going to get into that. Um, the word power here is uh, dynamias, which gives us our word dynamite, explosive, right? It's the same word that Paul used in Romans 1, 16, 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Uh, but this word power sometimes is used in the New Testament as um, um, signs or miracles. So people, like, they saw the signs. When the gospel is preached, Christ, says, uh, Christ told his disciple, um, you would do greater sign than, than me. And he said, this is the sign that's going to uh, accompany you uh, when you preach the gospel. So, so the term powers is, is a technical term for miracles. Um, so signs and gifts accompany the preaching of the gospel. And the disciples, we know they, made, they, they did many signs and wonders. People would take like, uh, handkerchief and like, hey, I, I'm, and those guys, they were trying to do the same thing Paul did, and then the, this demon-posed guy just like beat them up because they thought they could do the same things. Okay, I'm not going to get into the eschatological portion. Know that the age to come is the reign of Christ. Um, when Christ fully reveal his kingdom, but this time already been ushered. Um, you know, in, in chapter 1, verse 1, we said, in the, in the, um, God in the past spoke to our Father, but in these last days. So we're already in the last days, and Christ already ushered this new age. Um, but when he returned, the second advent is going to fully uh, appear, revealed, and, and then uh, he's going to establish his kingdom. Okay, up to this point, I told you these facts are true of Christians. So the question we, can, we need to ask ourselves, on one hand, it is certain that Christians experience all these things, enlightenment, tasting, sharing in the spirit, etc. But do only Christians experience them? Is it possible for these experiences to be true of people who have been repeatedly exposed to the gospel and to its benefits, but they don't have saving faith. They don't embrace the person of Christ or his work on the cross. They don't submit to his lordship, and they deny him by their actions. All right. This is how you should understand these passages. Uh, this passage. The term enlightened can simply mean you hear the gospel, you learn it, you understand it, intellectually you, 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 you grasp it, you know the facts, and you can also articulate it to other people with eloquence, you know, in French and, I don't know, in what, 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 I don't know, Spanish, those love language. You can speak the gospel. So this is receiving light, the gospel, the word of God. Your, your word is a light. But Sam Storms uh, put it this way. All true Christians have been enlightened, but not all of those who have been enlightened are true Christians. All true Christians have been enlightened, but not all of those who have been enlightened are true Christians. Okay, how about tasting? There is tasting the heavenly gift, tasting the word of God, tasting the, power of the, the powers of the age to come. There is no doubt. We're talking about genuine experience, okay? They are genuine experience, but they're not genuine saving experience. That's the difference. These people, they're not strangers to the gospel. They receive it, they heard it preached, and they were part of the congregation, so to speak. They have come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They experience blessing by, by coming close to grace. They probably labored side by side with genuine believers. 
and they have power to be performed wonders and miracles. But this kind of reminds me of the people in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. These people in Matthew 7, they, they, they preach, they prophesy, they perform miracles. They cast out demons. Have you ever cast, a, cast out a demon? I mean, I, I, I grew up in Haiti. I see people being like demon-possessed on uh, the Day of the Dead uh, kind of thing. It's, it's, it's really, like, frightening. But these people, like, they cast them out. <laughs> um, Jesus said to them, Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. So it's like you can go through the experiences, and yet you're far from God. You're far from Christ. This is another quote from Sam Storms again. These then have tasted the powers, the power and blessings of the new covenant, but they have not personally prized, cherished, embraced, loved, trusted, treasured, savored the atoning death of Jesus Christ as their only hope for eternal life. I'm saying you can taste something, but you didn't chew it and digest it and swallow it. I think I like this picture. I'm, now I'm going to put it in the context of Hebrews. Okay, I'm, take, I'm talking about like Christians and things like that, but I'm going to, remember I told you in the past that um, it's good to find, uh, to argue your point from the book itself. And um, Wayne Grudem came up with um, 17 or 18 things that are true of true believers that are, that are not, they're not here except one of them. So you have, you have this, they've been enlightened, they tasted the, the word of, the goodness of word of God. So those are like six different things, but he has 18, 17 or 18 uh, description of the believers that is not here. All right. So let's put it in the context of the book of Hebrews. Um, if you remember, I don't know if it's been a while when, when, I, when we look at chapter 2 and chapter 3. Um, in chapter 3, we have this uh, in, in verse 12. Take care, chapter 3, verse 12. Brothers, holy brothers, lest there be in you any evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another, Every day, as long as, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So there is this warning. And verse 15 says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in rebellion. Which rebellion? The rebellion of the people of Israel in the wilderness. They were real people. They were real people under Moses, um, but they perished. They all perished in the wilderness. They failed to enter the promised land because of the hardness of, of heart, because of unbelief. So chapter 2 and chapter 3 say, take heed. But here in chapter 6, these people already committed uh, the action of leaving Christ because the passage su suggests so. Verse 6 says this, and have fallen away. It's in the past tense. They, they already did that. So something was warned against in 2 and 3, but in chapter 6, it actually happened to a group of people, whoever they are. They had stopped believing they they'd stopped fighting the good fight. They stopped following Christ. And they went back. They went back to what? To Judaism. And I believe these people were in the congregation, uh, amongst the people who received this epistle. Like it, because in chapter 10, what it says, let's read chapter 10 real quick. It's a verse we use sometimes in evangelism to say, hey, you need to go to church. 25, 
Yeah, we met a guy one time. He's like, I don't go to church. I sit in my uh, living room and invite a couple of friends, and we have church in my living room. And we, I use this verse all the time. Like the Bible says, do not forsake the assembling of yourself together. But you see what it says in the second part? As it is the habit of some. So some people would not come to the meeting. Hebrews 10, 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So some people, they would not come to the meeting. They would stop coming altogether. And the reason is because they were on, uh, uh, under persecution. They were suffering for Christ. And they're like, nope. Um, I see this. They count the cost. They're not willing to go through that suffering they went back. Uh, the temple is there. The, the priest is there. I can go in and offer my sacrifice. This is easy. My family will not uh, disown me. So they do that. Um, if, if, if we read a little bit uh, down in 32, second part, this is what they were going through. You entered a hard struggle with suffering. You see, they are going through tr- struggles, sufferings for the sake of Christ. Verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed. Imagine if persecution rises and our church is being exposed or attacked. What would you do? Would you stand firm or would you like crumble down under the pressure? These people, like they were exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So I believe this is talking about a group of people, like they see like, okay, I'm going to give up. I'm going to throw in the towel. And they went back to the old covenant practices. The bad treatments, they didn't want to count the costs. And really when you compare, I think I mentioned that before, when you compare Judaism and Christ, Christ died for a Jew is a shameful thing for your Messiah to die at the hand, at the hand of a pagan army. The Romans, they, were, they, they, they didn't like the Romans. But you have the priest, you have, he's in the temple every day with his nice and pompous dress or garments. And at that time, Christianity was not accepted everywhere by by the Romans, it was considered a cult. Like these people uh, kind of look like the same religion, but it's it's another branch. So they count, they 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 weigh, they they have the balance, and they like, okay, no, I'm out of here. They threw in the tw- the towel. We are going to the book of Galatians with Brother Jason. Uh, the issue in Galatia in the church in Galatia was that Paul was rebuking them because um, they were adding circumcision to Christ. The Judaizers, they came into the church trying to seduce them to add circumcision to the finished work of Christ. And Paul told them, no, you cannot have Christ plus work, plus any type of work. But in Hebrews, these people, um, they were not adding anything to Christ. On the contrary, they completely turned their back on their Savior. And they went back to trying to obtain righteousness through the old covenant means, through the blood of bulls and goats, to Old Testament practice, practices. Same thing Brother Chris was uh, teaching last week. Uh, Paul went to Antioch of Presidia, and he was preaching like, hey, you cannot have justification by works of the law, but by trusting in Christ. But they went back. They wanted to keep the law. They wanted to go back to these practices. But the experience they had was like a Christian-like. They had the word of God. They see the miracle in, 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 the, in their midst. Um, they tasted the goodness of God, and yet they're like, I'm, I'm out of here. So that's the warning.
I'm going to go to the next portion to explain to you that uh, this warning is really uh, frightening because it's saying falling away. Um, and the author of Hebrews kind of used um, an illustration here to kind of portray that. So that's the second portion of my uh, study today. So the parable of the two categories of professing Christians. So what we have here in, in verses 4 to 6, it's kind of illustrated in verses 7 and 8. It's kind of a little parable in the passage. We read this, verse 7. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, so this drinking of rain, constantly drinking the rain, refers to blessings, the blessings we have in in, in 4 and 5, the, the enlightenment, the sharing in the Holy Spirit, the tasting of spiritual blessings. So the land that had drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake he was cultivated receives a blessing from God. So the land represents people. For those who is cultivated... You, it's a parable. Sometimes you don't have to have one-to-one -one mapping. Like people are like, okay, this means this, this means that. And you, know, you don't have that here. It's a parable. Sometimes you don't, you don't have um, to have a perfect match. Um, verse 8, but if it bears thorns and thistle, this is corresponding to falling away, the falling away portion of verse 6. It is worthless and near to be cursed, and its end is to be burned. So the author of using this and saying that the land that received the blessing, if it produces thorn and thistles, it's going to be burned. It's to be cursed. This is judgment language. This is what happens to you if you fall away. And you can see these people are still alive because this says their end is to be burned. First of all, there is like a certainty that is to be burned. That's what's going to happen to them, but it's in the future. And them being worthless and producing thorn and thistles kind of reminds you of what happened uh, to Adam in the garden when God cursed him. He says the, land, the ground would produce thorn and thistles. So that's cursed and Judgment language. So when the rain falls on, on, on the ground, it falls on all kind of soils, right? Here in Texas, we have clay, I think, in our soil. Like in my backyard, I try to do something, and it's like it's hard. It's like Shirley asked me, like, hey, muscle. Well, put your muscle to work. I'm like, I can't. I'm trying. Um, but I remember when we first got our house, like we we, we our builders, some builders, they don't give you uh, grass. So we have like one-third of grass, like it was the, the, the front of the house, but the back was like no grass. So we had to buy sods, and it was nice. So we patched them and put them together. And, uh, yeah, we're like, oh, yeah, we have grass now. But I think when spring comes and, like, we had a few rains, and we have wow, we have weeds like this tall in our backyard. We didn't know like, hey, the rain comes and it's, it's going to make everything green. But we didn't know the type of grass we had. We're like, oh, we have bad grass. And what do we do? Surely she has a green tongue. Like, hey, go, go, to get, go to Home Depot, get, I don't know, those weed killer. And like, you go and do this little thing. So we didn't know the grass was uh, bad. So in like manner here, the land is bad. And people might say, look, no, this is a land that produced good food first and then produced bad food. It is, it is not saying that. It's, this picture is two different kinds of land, two dif different kinds of soil. It doesn't say that it, it, it got rains and produced good food, then something happened and the, it, it got lost. No, that would support the view of 
people will say like you can lose your salvation, but the picture is of two different kinds of ground all together. Almost like the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, right? You have four different soil, but we know like all the, the, the first three, they, they were bad. But the last one, the good soil, produced fruit uh, manifold, 60, 50, 60, 100 fold. This is a quote from Wayne Goodham. The idea of a land that once bore good food and now bears thorns is not compatible with this picture. The implication is this. While the positive experiences listed in verse 4 to 6 do not provide us enough information to know whether these people are truly saved, the committing of apostasy apostasy and holding Christ up to contempt do reveal that do we feel the true nature of those who fall away? All along, they have been like a bad ground that can only bear bad fruit. If the metaphor of the thorn-bearing land explains verses 4 to 6, and it surely does, then their falling away shows that they were never saved in the first place. And he says that in his work, uh, Perseverance of, this, of the Saints, a case study for Hebrews 6 and 4 to 6. So here, the author of Hebrews, he's using this parable to explain like, hey, these people, they're bad land, they're bad soil because they produce thorn and thistles. The third point, the promise and assurance for the believer. And that's verse 9. Let's read verse 9. Though we speak in this way, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for, the sa- for his name in serving the saints. As you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may be not sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The better things. Those, are, those people are a different kind of soil. They are the good soil, which we see actually in verse um, 8. I'm sorry, um, verse 7. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, it produces a crop useful. These people, they produce a crop that is useful. And it explains it here in verse 9. Verse 9 says, they produce better things, things belonging to salvation. So what you have, the experience you have in in verse 4, 5, and 6, they're the bad crop or the, the bad fruit. And the, the, the description we have here in verse 9, 10, and 11 is the good fruit. So he's talking about verse 10. Your work, they produce work. They produce love. They're serving the saints. They desire, uh, they, they have earnestness. They have full assurance and hope until the end. If you think of the fruit of the Spirit, being uh, earnest, um, love, joy, peace, uh, faithfulness, all these. Some of these is, is fruit of the Spirit. And these are, this is a different kind of land. It's a different kind of ground. They produce a crop that is useful. And the better things here, they belong to salvation. I remember I was in a church, and this brother, 
he took me out. Uh, we went evangelizing. And I was new in the faith. I was like, I, was, I had this zeal. I was like, hey, every Saturday, let's go knock on doors. And, and he, he met a couple of guys, and he was like, you know, the way of the master. Like, he kind of take the law and show this guy, you are under condemnation. I was like, wow, I, even I feel I'm under condemnation. I cannot, you know, measure up. And after the after we after the evangelism, like we we kind of talk like what what did what did we learn what what happened like yeah this guy seems to be under conviction and things like that. And then on, on Sunday we I saw the brother he went uh, on the upstairs and like give a testimony hey we went to evangelism and and we spoke to these people and think we think the Lord is doing a work in 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 that neighborhood. A couple months later, this guy fell into adultery. And it looks like he had an affair with a lady, uh, with a lady like for a long period of time. Someone that you go out with, they encourage you, and yet they have sin in their life, showing that they were never truly, um, they didn't have any victory over that sin. And the the worst part is that the church was like, hey, we're going to work with his wife and we're going to help her. And she came, like she talked to us, she talked to Shirley, she talked to me. Um, and like, hey, what's going on? I, I know this brother, he was so encouraging. What happened? And she kind of explained, yeah, he's, he's, I've been trying to find him. I finally caught him. While the church is working with her, she got mad and wanted to uh, kind of do the same thing to the husband. She actually went and did that. She also committed adultery. It's to tell you, like, people can fool you. People can have an appearance of holiness. They can have the experience, like, they can be here. They can, hallelujah, praise the Lord, like Vodi Balkan would say. Like, but yet, they're a bad crop. They are a bad land. All this experience in chapter 6, verse 4 to 6, seems to be good. But look what happened to them. They fall away. But the assurance for the believer is that they have better things. Things that belong to salvation. God is not unjust to overlook your work. They're working. They're working for the saints. They show love. They're earnest. They're diligent. They don't let sin like build up in their life. Like they kill sin the moment it shows up. And he says. Show the same earnestness to, have, earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end. The believer will persevere until the end. We know it's not by our strength. Yes, we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, but also we know that it is God who works in us. So the promise is that if you have genuine faith, you will persevere until the end. You have hope until the end. And he kind of point them to, you see, the, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. That's looking forward to chapter 11 where we have all these heroes of, heroes of the faith. So the author of Hebrews He, he put those two people to, side by side. And he says this. If you read five, um, four, five, and six, and you feel shaken in your faith, continue reading. If you're a genuine Christian, you would have hope, you have assurance 
and you will continue until the end. But some people, when they come here, they have reason to be shaken because they do not rest totally on Christ. Anything that is more important than Jesus Christ can cause you to drift away. Anything. It can be your phone. It can be Facebook. It can be a good thing in the church. It can be like a ministry. Therefore, heed the warning. The Lord is, is providing, here in this passage, both a warning but the assurance of a promise. On the one hand, the warning is incredibly severe, even frightening. They seem to tell the believer, if you abandon your faith, if you continue in evil, if you do not persevere until the end, the only prospect for you is eternal judgment and hell. But on the other hand, the text has assurance. There is a guarantee that God will continue the good work that he started in you. And he will see to it, if you are his elect, if you, are, if you belong to him, it will preserve you to the end. Not by virtue of your strength, but by the power of God working in us through his Holy Spirit. God made a promise. Jesus made a promise. If you come to me, I will by no means cast you out. Jesus said, I give you eternal life. Imagine Jesus giving you eternal life and you were to lose, to lose it. What does that say of Jesus? It's either it was not eternal life or he's a liar. But we know it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for Jesus to lie. So that's the assurance we have. That's the, that's the better things for the Christian. I have a list of verses outside of Hebrews um, that kind of show how God keeps us. John 5, 24. Romans 8, 39. We have the nothing can separate us from the uh, love of Christ, the love of God in Jesus Christ. The gift that God gave, gave us is irrevocable, it says in Romans 11. But I want to read um, all the little verses in the book of Hebrews that Wayne Grudem kind of present as characteristic of someone who is safe, someone who is the good crop, someone who is uh, a genuine believer. I have it here, and I'm going to close with it. And this is not said of the people here in, in verse 4, 5, and 6. This is different. If you're a genuine Christian, this is your assurance. God has forgiven your sins. Hebrews 10, 17. Hebrews 8, 12. God has cleansed your conscience. Hebrews 9. God has written his law on your heart. Hebrews 8. God is producing holiness of life in you. God has given you an unshakable kingdom. God is pleased with you. You would have faith. You will have hope. You would have love. You would obey God. You would persevere till the end. You would enter the rest of God. You will know God. You are God's house. You are God's children. You are his people. You will share in Christ. You will receive salvation. All these are the good things that belong to the good land. Things that belong to salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even though the warnings in this book talk about people falling away, but Lord, we have promises 
we can have assurance of hope. We can have assurance of hope in Jesus Christ. Better things belonging to salvation. So Lord, help us to grasp these promises. And if we, f- if we feel like we lack assurance, let us hold on to the promises. And let us rest in that, Lord, you are working in us. You're helping us by the power of your spirit. You're keeping us until the end. Bless your word, Lord, in our life. Let us keep small account with you. Come to you quickly when we we would be like, Peter, Lord, save me every second of our life to trust and run to you. In Jesus' name, amen.